to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. This week we've got a slightly different episode for you, featuring two guests we've already had on, Sarah Wall from episode 17 and Aaron Albrecht from episode 27, to weigh in on different issues as we enter this intensely political season. We brought these two back on because they are both politically involved and are on opposite ends of the political spectrum, Aaron on the left and Sarah on the right. We discuss cancel culture and the effect social media has on it, giant tech companies and their issues associated to labor, antitrust, and privacy concerns, big government versus small government, U.S. military spending, and of course, what might happen this November. So if you're thinking, wow, that sounds like a minefield, you're probably right, but we went there anyway, and the result is an excellent example of how to thoughtfully discuss important political issues even when you disagree. So without further ado, here's the conversation. Well, okay. Hey, Sarah and uh, Aaron, uh, two really dear friends of mine, welcome to Podso One again. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so, uh, the, again, Aaron and Sarah are really good friends of mine. Um, I would say that Aaron is kind of on the left, and we have really great conversations, and Sarah is kind of on the right, and we have awesome conversations. But I want you guys to introduce yourselves to the listeners uh, with a little bit more context than that. So, Aaron, why don't we start with you? Um, tell us a little bit about the, the path that your life has taken uh, in your education and what you're doing now. Uh, and stuff like that. Sweet, Daniel. Thank you so much. And thanks for having us. Um, Yeah. And I just want to mention too, on the side that, you know, I've been friends with you for a number of years now, and you've been friends with Sarah and I've known Sarah. We all went to college together and, um, uh, and, you know, we're both political. So this was perfect. So thanks for thinking of doing this. Uh, when it comes to my history, I um, have always been sort of interested in political topics and politics. I, in college, I studied um, sociology and anthropology, and then um, I got a graduate degree in public policy. And uh, I've worked for a couple nonprofits. I've worked in the, uh, and then I've uh, also worked in state government for a little while. So uh, that's sort of the experience that I bring to bear and the education too. Awesome. Sarah, hit it. All right, cool. Yeah, just to echo Aaron, it's so great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about all this and especially among friends because it's always better to talk politics among friends. (laughs) Um, So yes, um, I uh, grew up in in Virginia. Um, I went to William & Mary, which is where I met these two lovely gentlemen here. Um, I have had a bunch of, of different jobs in sort of the political field and the non-political field. Um, I grew up in a very conservative house, um, became sort of much more democratic or, I don't know, sort of a pseudo-liberal, I guess, in college and a little bit after college. Um, and then I moved to Baltimore to work for a nonprofit where I was for, I guess, I guess about a year and a half, um, and that was very eye-opening for me um, in terms of the impact of democratic policies on on urban areas. And um, I'm really passionate about um, especially like libertarians and, and more conservative thought um, in urban areas. And I'm now really blessed to work at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, I live in Northern Virginia now, um, and I've only been there for a few months. Um, 
And it's been a real, uh, a real delight to work in politics in 2020. <laughs> so I am ready to do politics again <laughs> in the evening. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> cool. So Paul, I think uh, you want to jump in. You are uh, muted. All right, the good news oh, is buddy. I got it. I got it out of the way early. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, so I, I'm an older guy who was never on social media. I've, I've never really been on Twitter, uh, Instagram, sort of the last few months. Facebook is where I'm, I'm more active because people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s seem to hang out on Facebook. But I, I didn't join Facebook until a few months ago when the podcast started. We thought it'd be a cool way to get the word out about the podcast. And I am horrified at some of the things I read on Facebook uh, and I get that it's the extremes uh, sort of yelling at each other uh, <laughs> or yelling to themselves in some cases. Uh, but this whole notion of attacking an individual or a small group of people and but there's no due process. There's just make this person famous for a very negative reason or set of reasons. Uh, essentially affect them in a way that is both very uh, – painful and long lasting over something that may not be true. I think the, the media and, and commonly folks will refer to this as the cancel culture. I don't understand it. it it's not the way I was raised. It's not the way that uh, social norms were formed uh, in my world growing up or even as a young adult. So let's, let's talk about the cancel culture. I, I, I don't see any good in it. Uh, it's who we become, but I'd love for you guys to uh, discuss your views on the cancel culture. And, and uh, we can start with yeah. Sarah. All right, cool. Yeah, to me, the, the cancel culture is, uh, well, I guess to start off, because I know defining terms is, is a big part of, of what what politics really should be about. And, and to me, the, the cancel culture is this tendency of people who believe very, very strongly in a certain thing to basically invalidate someone who believes the opposite viewpoint in order to win an argument. And I think it has really grown out of, of sort of the, the intolerance movement. Uh, and I say that specifically because I, I think that the democratic left sort of began as like a, a sort of, we need to just embrace everyone and we need to be very tolerant. And tolerance is, is sort of this, this word that I think most Americans would say, yeah, of course I want to be tolerant. Like that's sort of the don't tread on me mindset, you know? But then in the 60s, there was a really intentional decision by academics to sort of change that to, we need to be intolerant of intolerant views. <laughs> and so what is defined by tolerance versus intolerance is essentially everything that that sort of the democratic left, like the hard left would say is correct or moral, that is acceptable. And if you believe something opposite than that, then then you are obviously evil, you are obviously immoral, and you deserve to be canceled. And I think that that can the cancel culture, where how it's become really dangerous in in particularly since the Trump administration, I would say, although, you know, that's I've become very political since the Trump administration, so that could be sort of my bias. But since the Trump administration, I think a lot of the cancel culture has sort of flowed downstream from academia into culture and into everyone's sort of daily lives. And now you see if someone dares to express a view that is sort of 
deemed intolerant, then not only are, are their social lives at risk, but their careers are at risk or their school life is at risk. Um, and I think that's where cancel culture is really dangerous because Twitter as sort of the ultimate arbiter of truth, I think <laughs> people really use Twitter as like, this is the way the world actually is. If you're canceled on Twitter, then that flows down into your, into your professional life even. And people have, have, you know, contemplated suicide because of the social sort of ostracization that they receive um, when they're being canceled or when they've been canceled. And I think that that really at the root of it is, is a question of, of freedom of speech and a question of, of sort of freedom of expression. And, and, and that's a little bit tough to say because cancel culture is not unconstitutional because the constitution, it protects Americans by law. And there's nothing, there's, there's nothing about the, 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 the United States of America is canceling you. And so then it's not really unconstitutional. But I think that, that what we find in the culture <clears throat> is that politics is downstream or the law is downstream of culture. And so if someone is canceled in the cultural world today, then 50 years from now, or even 10 years from now, when, when the individuals who are so intent on canceling people who disagree with them when they're really making policy decisions, then that's how sort of how, how these sort of freedoms, how the freedom of expression, which is fundamental to American life is then really eroded away. So that's my, that's my biggest concern I would say with cancel culture. Yeah. So we naturally got there, uh, I think, uh, and it feels like it's going to be around for forever. Aaron, do you see the cancel culture going away, or uh, uh, and if and if it stays around, do you do you see good or bad in it? Yeah, you know, Sarah, I like a lot of what you said, and I agree with a lot of what you said about cancel culture. Cancel culture is something that also worries me quite a bit, um, and has for a long time, even before it was called cancel culture, because this phenomenon's kind of evolved. It is. It has a it has its distinct nature nowadays, which is what you're talking about for sure. Um, you know, the, you know, one thing I wanted to mention about this, um, you mentioned the, the democratic left and I agree with you that it's the democratic left that's doing this. And in the sense, and by what I mean by the democratic left is what I'm talking about are the, uh, you know, the, the, um, what I think is a certain class of people, you know, in other words, I think this, these are affluent, mostly white professional managerial class, uh, overly educated young people that are doing this, just like you're, how you described, uh, the, uh, you know, that, uh, how, you know, how you're describing how it comes from academia back in the 60s until now and went through into, uh, you know, people's professional careers into HR departments and into people's everyday lives. And, uh, you know, the other thing I just wanted to mention about just the nuance of that point of the democratic left is that there are, you know, segments of the left that, you know, don't agree with cancel culture, you know, so-called as at all, you know, so I, I, I don't, I just want to add that point of nuance in, in saying that I accept that the phenomenon exists. And then I also just want to point out that, you know, among the left, you know, there's a war going on among the left right now. 
between, you know, progress, you know, progressive leftists and, you know, corporate, uh, you know, party establishment elite type, you know, identity politics obsessed leftists. And I think that that is where this is coming from, from an identity politics uh, framework, because like you were saying, this is a threat to freedom of experience expression, freedom of speech, which is the core bedrock principle of democracy writ large. The other thing I wanted to bring into this discussion of cancel culture, which is going to seem a little bit like a, uh, like I'm dodging the question, though I don't feel responsible. I don't feel like I have to defend people that participate in cancel culture, because like you said, it has real repercussions on people's real lives. I mean, you'll hear a lot of people trying to defend cancel culture in a number of ways. For example, some of the ways I've heard, they'll say, you know, that uh, the people that are getting canceled are the ones that deserve to get canceled because of um, their position in society, you know, or because um, they're not a marginalized, you know, whatever, you know, I've heard it, a type of argument like that. Um, though I don't feel like I have to defend those people that participate in cancel culture, I don't think it's right. Uh, you know, recently what happened was there was that letter that was published in Harper's Magazine condemning cancel culture. There are a number of signatories to it. Most notably, in my opinion, was Noam Chomsky, which is, uh, you know, a darling of the left. Yeah. And um, and another and in that letter, they were referring to Barry Weiss. Now, you know, I think that the cancel culture discussion has been so over talked about in my personal opinion. Um, and uh, to the point where I think it's almost a distraction from some of the issues that I think are more important to be talking about, like the economic issues that affect people's lives. Although I will say that, of course, cancel culture, this is going to the First Amendment, the freedom of expression. So it is worth talking about. The thing I'll mention about Barry Weiss and what I what I consider the original cancel culture prior to this being a popularized term was the fact that through most of the past 30 years, I would say, and more than that, the, uh, there's been a distinct occurrence where certain people, academics mostly, that would criticize the state of Israel would be canceled. There's been a lot of notable cases of this. One, uh, most notably, Norman Finkelstein was a professor, I think, at DePaul in Chicago, Chicago I think. And uh, he wrote, and, you know, he was, his parents died in the Holocaust. He's a Jew, and he wrote quite a bit about uh, what he called the Holocaust industry that people were making money off. Um, I can't remember quite his arguments, forgive me. But um, he was very critical of the state of Israel. And, uh, and he was, there were a group of students, Barry Weiss, one of among them that, uh, you know, challenged this professor, said he was anti-Semitic, just like, you know, this, you know, this was almost the birth of cancel culture, said he was anti-Semitic, then challenged his tenure application at the university and created, and there was such a stir created about this that he wasn't, he went through a, you know, a tr an academic trial. They scrutinized everything he'd ever written. And uh, in, in the end, they didn't end up giving him tenure, but it was not because of any academic dishonesty. It was because of the political nature of this 
whole conundrum. So I just wanted to throw that in there too, that, you know, for long, long before the Twitter uh, cancel culture and the face, you know, Facebook, and this is what's going on in social media, there were people on the left that were being uh, canceled, you know, from the beginning. And I think that we should be outspoken about that too. The other thing I'll mention, this will be my final point, is that, you know, the, the other thing that's going on now is not just individuals on Twitter canceling one another, you know, or, or and what, you know, like how we see on Reddit or whatever else, people getting fired from their jobs, what we're generally talking about when we're talking about cancel culture. The other thing is that we see, um, you know, Google changed its algorithms and, um, you know, partic- you know, this very go in certain, like Alex Jones got, kicked off Twitter. He was the first to go. Alex Jones got kicked off, got deplatformed, and uh, a number of other uh, websites, some fringe, what I would call fringe right-wing extremist websites, conspiracy theorists, and then also what, I, you know, independent media that is anti-war, that is anti-capitalist uh, media, uh, you know, also got deplatformed and they're their search results don't show up on the first page of Google searches anymore. One website like this would be uh, the World Socialist website, right? A, a left-wing opinion news website. So those are just a few things I wanted to throw into the discussion about cancel culture, just to open it up to a little yeah. bit more of a, a wider view than just what we've been seeing on social media. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think, I think, I think we should hesitate. Uh, and I know that I'm the one who called it the democratic left, but I think that, I think that really it's about the, the, the group that feels they're in power. And I think if we sort of look broadly at like what sort of makes up maybe partisan ideology or the political world or whatever, I think there, there's, there's politics and there's the law, right? There's one bucket. And then academia plays a major role in, in terms of, of, political thought and then cultural. And, and if you, if you look at sort of Hollywood as sort of a microcosm of, of culture, I think that those three buckets are sort of interchangeable or sort of all at play kind of when, when we talk about, when we talk about political change or cultural change. And I think right now in, in 2020, um, when when we're looking at those groups, it's very clear that it's it's sort of the most progressive, the most progressive sort of within maybe the democratic elite. Like I think there is, of course, as you mentioned, the World Socialist Organization that's probably a little bit outside the mainstream, but sort of the mainstream progressivism, I think, is is very much in control of academia and thereby the media. And it's also in control of Hollywood. Um, and, and you can see that in, in terms of the, the cultural sort of movies, the cultural books. I mean, what, what sort of makes it to the New York Times top seller list or whatever is it's, it's going to be a, sort of this worldview. And I think that that has even even if it's just a perception. Right. Because I don't think necessarily that that all of middle America, the heartland believes all those things. It is indeed a perception of of power for that sort of mainstream progressivism viewpoint. And so that sort of gives this platform for canceling. And as you mentioned, totally fairly, these things 
are not stagnant. They're not stuck that way. Like back in the 1990s, it was very much not okay to say that the state of Israel should not exist. And that was sort of the view that's in power. And that's why I think cancel culture is so particularly dangerous is because the constitution and in, in, in the entire United States of America was set up to protect minority rights. Like we have the Bill of Rights in order to protect minor, like minorities, you know, like we have the Electoral College because the founding fathers didn't trust sort of the, the tyranny of the majority, like 51% should not be able to just completely override the views of 49%. And I think that cancel culture sort of undermines that that set of views, you know. But I think as you mentioned too, Aaron, like the, the role of social media in this is something that the founding fathers never could have foreseen because we have sort of monopolies on the internet of Google and Facebook and Twitter and sort of, I think there's even been some congressional hearings about like, like is this a monopoly? Is this not a monopoly? And <laughs> whether or not it's like officially a monopoly in, in sort of the 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 most definitional sense, lawyerly sense, I think it's very clear that those are some of the most powerful organizations because they control the information. And so the, the dangerous thing about that is what they're doing in shutting people down or taking down people's tweets or taking down entire Facebook pages, they're not breaking the constitution. They're not doing anything that's, that's illegal that they can be taken to court for, but they are really creating a sort of narrative. And, and, and I think that, that the narrative that this is okay to say, and this is not okay to say, is a very powerful sort of control on, on the information that people are consuming. And when all of those people come from a worldview, a certain worldview, not even just a, a leftist worldview, but a very like democratic establishment, like West Coast leftism worldview, a very California worldview, when they're the ones deciding what information is okay to say and what information is not okay to say, then I, and especially in an election year, when everything is really amped up to 20 then that becomes a kind of, I don't know, like a monopoly on the, on the control of information. And I think that sort of ties right in with cancel culture, not in quite the same extent. I don't think Twitter is going to make anyone lose their jobs by taking down any Facebook pages, but it does sort of create this sense that like big brothers watching and I need to protect you from yourself. And that's a very un-American thing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I just want to echo a little bit what you were saying there, Sarah. And, you know, just for our listeners, you know, just because Sarah and I don't disagree on everything doesn't mean, you know, I hope hope nobody was coming here looking for a cat fight or something. You know? so, but I do want to echo this last point you were saying, Sarah, because to me it's so important about the creating a narrative, right? And I think, um, I think the other thing that you're pointing out, you know, um, about this this ideology, right? In other words, you know, when these when these monopolies uh, contr control the platform, control in a sense the free press. You know, they've monopolized the free press mostly, except for you know small uh, independent outlets that don't have the funding, you know, to make an impact. Really, although they do, but. Uh, you know, this creating a narrative, which is boxing, creating a box where these are the acceptable views to have, these are unacceptable views to have, 
you know, uh, it, you control the conversation and you control what is possible to be achieved. What, you know, you know, you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, abolish the police, for example, is outside the box, but defund the police or, you know, move some money around a little bit here and there on the edges, that's within the box. That's just one little example. But then the other thing I wanted to mention about this is like what you were saying about these digital monopolies, Twitter, and for example, Twitter just started uh, labeling, you know, which news outlets are sponsored by particular governments or some, you know, so RT, Russia Today, there's a little, you know, exclamation that says, you know, be aware that this is sponsored by the Russian government or Televisión, this is, you know, it's a Spanish language uh, outlet from Venezuela. There's a little marker that says this is sponsored by, this is state-sponsored media. In other words, be careful, don't trust it. You know, same thing with Chinese uh, newspapers and uh, but what they don't label is the BBC. That's a state-sponsored news outlet, right? They don't label uh, NPR. That's a state-sponsored news outlet. And so you know, there's these little things that they're able to do to so you know. And you know, on first thought, we'd think, oh well, yeah, of course, RT is propaganda, and the China Morning Post or whatever is propaganda, and Televisión is pure propaganda, but, you know, to what extent is our mainstream media, our capitalist media, our monopoly owned and controlled media, you know, propaganda. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to echo that, what you were saying, sir. Yeah. And um, I think these tech companies are interesting because they sort of found themselves in the role of being a utility company, kind of like roads and libraries and uh, public squares, they're in that role, but they're still private companies or they're, they're um, privately run. Uh, they might be like publicly invested in, but um, it's a weird intersection to be in uh, because of exactly what we're talking about. Uh, being able to say, well, all of a sudden, you know, Toyotas can't drive on the road as a loose uh, analogy to, to saying like, okay, this is no longer in the mainstream or, or we're going to conspicuously mark this as being like a fringe thing uh, or, you know, demote it in our algorithms. So, uh, and they're huge. I mean, Google has a, a basic almost monopoly on, on search. I think 95% of search traffic goes through Google. Um, Twitter and Facebook are, are uh, both like, I mean, I think Twitter has 17% of the American population. So it's actually only a slice of what is really America. Mm-hmm. But in terms of getting online to see what's going on, um, that's that, that's kind of it, you know, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so let's transition, let, let, let's stay on the topic of the big tech, but transition to sort of this concern about um, of, of monopolizing our channels of communication. Uh, what do you guys think is the going to be the answer to that is it going to be a sort of like break up the big company style legislation that gets handed down from the government or uh should competing small uh snappy startups come up and try to uh somehow compete with these like enormous giants you know like amazon for example uh not that amazon is i mean it used to be small but amazon as an example of one of the giants uh because to me, like, I don't see a 
a feasible route that anyone starting an Amazon-like company could take to to viably compete. So, uh, so what? Yeah, what is the answer, uh, and is there an answer really? Uh, Sarah, go, you can go first if if you if you want. Sure. Yeah. So I am never a fan, sort of as sort of a free market kind of individual liberty type worldview. I'm never really a fan, even when I don't like what Twitter and Facebook are doing. I I don't think that it's the, especially the federal government's role. And this is of course what we're talking about, because this is something that crosses state lines. So state governments aren't going to have any power over it, but I don't think that the federal government should play this role. And I think part of that is because Sort of now, you know, we, I don't, I, I don't think that, that conservatives or even Republicans and Democrats in Congress necessarily agree. And I think that if, if Democrats in the House today or Republicans in the Senate tomorrow, if they use sort of their, the heavy hand of government to smack down sort of Twitter and Facebook, that gives the other party a very long leash four or eight or 10 or 12 years from now to just go ahead and and slap down what they think should be done too. And and when there's no sort of small government voice, which I think, unfortunately, we're sort of losing, especially in Congress right now, there's really no small government voice to say like, hey, this is really not the government's role to be getting involved in, in the comings and goings to private companies in the United States, I think then then we sort of have this problem where we just sort of swing back and forth from, you know, big government on the right to big government on the left. And I personally don't think that's that's the kind of world that that we really or that's the kind of America that we really want to be creating that's sort of prosperous and free market and individual liberty for all. So I would ask all of us to consider that Facebook was created in a college dorm room. Like Facebook was not created from sort of this, you know, huge influx of capital that came in to support what was eventually going to be one of the largest sort of American tech companies in the entire world. It built from there. And I think what's, what's so great about this country is that we do have such a culture of startups. And I know Daniel knows this better than anyone because he's about to get involved in a startup. That it's really a beautiful and kind of exciting and very energetic thing to say like, yeah, like I'm staking out and I so admire the visionaries out there who are able to say, you know, this is, this is really what I'm going to do and I'm going for it. And I think there's a lot of power and a lot of grit um, in that entrepreneurial kind of spirit. And I think that big companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter, they are now, I think, probably starting, and this is complete conjecture, I know nothing about their sort of business models, but I can imagine and sort of looking at the news that they are sort of sinking under this kind of bureaucracy because that's what happens. I mean, look at the federal government. We have all these regulations and all these rules. And I worked for a huge financial services firm not very long ago. And you can see when you are, you know, working in a huge company like that, like there's a lot of stifling of the kind of energy and entrepreneurial spirit that a startup of like five or six people just naturally has. And so I know that right now it's difficult for us to sort of foresee a future where there's more competition, but I think we're already starting to see a need for it. Like I know there was a, the creation of a, a platform of, I think it was, I think it was actually a couple years ago, but it got started to get a lot of attention a couple months ago called Parler or Parlay. Um, it's, it's like the French word to, to converse, to argue or to discuss 
And I think that's important for us to be aware that as the American public grows frustrated with sort of this monopolizing of the information, I think and hope that there will be kind of a natural breakup as, and and of course, there's a lot of ifs and ands and buts about that, mostly money, mostly involving money. But I think that, I think that the American public are hungry for something that allows a more, a freer sort of exchange, a freer conversation of ideas. Um, and I, I hope that that sort of naturally occurs rather than needing the government to step in. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting take. Um, I read a book about this, which is a really cool book uh, written by a guy named Matt Stoller, who um, the the title of the book is called Goliath. And then subtitles Monopoly versus Democracy or something like that. And and Matt Stoller worked on the Senate. I don't know what it was, maybe Financial Services Committee or something like that during um, the uh, 2008-2009 collapse. And it's he wrote a history of this, um, you know, the of, of of monopoly in America. It's a phenomenal book. I'd recommend it to any of the the listeners. And um, you know, one thing, you know, there was just recently a a, a committee hearing um, that got a lot of attention, a subcommittee hearing on antitrust that was held in the House of Representatives a few weeks ago. So interesting to see this. It was such a historic hearing because we had five of the tech giants. There was, uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos. There was, uh, Google. What's his name? Pari. Sundar Uh, Pichai. Exactly. Uh, there was, um, Apple. Zuckerberger from Facebook. What's the name of the Apple guy? Tim Cook. Tim Cook. So was there four or was there a fifth one? Does anybody remember? I, I think there were only four. There, were, there were only four. four. And I remember uh, uh, call, calling you and talking to you while it was going on and after yeah. it happened. <laughs> yeah. And it was laughing such... about how the whole thing seemed kind of like a farce and it seemed like a, a big slap on the wrist with all these Congress people waxing poetic about ideals and morals. And then saying, like, you shouldn't do that. That sounds wrong. You should be better. And then they just <laughs> stop talking and then the CEOs go home. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another funny thing that happened in the hearing is that none of these tech CEOs could get their Skype to work. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the things that was so interesting about this hearing was that, you know, we haven't had those four people sit down in front of the House of Representatives all at the same time ever before. And these are some of the most powerful people in our country, let alone in the world. You know, these are the, some of the richest, most powerful, most entrepreneurial people. In fact, I think Jeff Bezos of Amazon is the most richest person in the world. Um, though what, what was and what was historic about it was that the chairman of the committee was you know, was uh, quoting Louis Brandeis, who is a Supreme Court justice who is famous for breaking up all the trusts. He was a big time trust buster back in the time of uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. And um, and uh, so it was interesting to see this turn towards a more antitrust break up the monopolies uh, attitude among some of the Democrats in the House of Representatives. Like Daniel was saying, I, I don't think anything will come of it, but we'll see. Uh, 
What we did learn from the hearing, though, which is interesting, is the amount of anti-competitive, you know, the anti-competitive practices that these corporations were engaging in. You know, I could I could try and list some of them. Um, uh, for example, Amazon will, you know, whenever a third party seller sells something on Amazon, they have they found evidence that. You know, uh, if whenever there was something that was doing selling very well, uh, Amazon would, you know, find, you know, would find that model would re, you know, would, I think would look, you know, they had to turn over their intellectual property or whatever it was. And that Amazon would then create that product, sell it under the Amazon off brand, you know, the Amazon brand, and then, you know, sort of block you know, push that third party seller so that the Amazon products would appear on the screen first and, you know, and, uh, and they would undersell them or until they kicked them out of business and then they would raise the price. Right. Uh, that's just one example. But what we found was that, you know, these tech giants were engaging in anti-competitive practices that I, you know, from what I understand are illegal under, you know, the law of the books, because like what Sarah was talking about, a free market, you know, what is a free market? Well, a free market is a competitive market. And, uh, and, you know, I think anybody, any economics, you know, I think all of economics, and even if we don't consult economics, you know, I think any reasonable person would agree that, you know, free markets, competitive markets are, you know, what we're shooting for here. And in order to have a competitive market, you know, there has to be the rules of the market. You know, the market doesn't exist without some sort of rules. Now, I know what Sarah's talking about is this overburdensome regulation, right, that, uh, you know, stifles the entrepreneurial spirit, that makes the businesses less efficient, makes them less in, in, in less, you know, less ingenuity and, you know, makes prices go up and stuff like that. So the fact that, you know, these tech uh, billionaires, these tech companies are, you know, in a, in a, that are monopolies that engage in anti-competitive practices. This is, you know, horrible for them. It's bad for the market and it's, it's, it's illegal. The other thing I'll say about um, the, the regulation, it's a fascinating history. What happened? There was a long time prior to the night, night, you know, prior to the new deal, there was a history of breaking up monopolies of trust busting. There's a strong body of law, the Sherman act and, uh, and other bits of legislation that the department of justice and the, I guess this, I don't know what else security and exchange commission would, uh, you know, um, there's a body of law that allowed, companies, if they engaged in anti-competitive practices, to be broken up because what we know is that, you know, if you have a monopoly, it's not a competitive market. It's, you know, it's it's no longer a free market. And um, the history of this is that after, with the new Democrats that came into office after the 60s, the Cultural Revolution of the 60s, I was mentioning that book, Matt Stoller, Goliath, he goes over this history, is a lot of these, the consumer groups, right? The clean water, clean air, clean, um, you know, the seatbelts, you know, the Ralph Nader consumer watchdog groups, this generation of new Democrats that believed, when they came into power, 
that believed that, um, you know, if you have one big corporation that, you know, controls the market, we can overlook that so long as we can regulate the corporation, uh, you know, and get the desired outcome, you know, safe, safe, men, safe cars, whatever else it is, you know, less pollution, you know, so the example being that if you have one uh, seller of light bulbs and you want to make it regulate a more efficient light bulb for climate change, it's easier to regulate one corporation than it would be to regulate an entire uh, marketplace of firms that are selling light bulbs. And it was, and at the same time as this regulatory philosophy was coming to play, so too was the, you know, this philosophy of uh, Robert Bork in the 80s, and uh, who did a lot of work changing the entire field of antitrust and, uh, and really set us back a long time in terms of, you know, being able to break up monopolies. And, uh, and I think that the Federalist Society play, was involved in this too, to an extent. So when it comes to the question of um, these big tech monopolies, I agree that overburdensome regulation is not the way to go. Uh, you know, I would advocate in this moment that we need to break these companies up for two reasons. One, because it makes them more competitive. For example, right now, China is out doing us in the world of tech. You know, they're, they're uh, you know, doing 5G where just they beat us to 5G, right? And, uh, you know, with uh, TikTok is a more, uh, what do you call, lucrative app than some of these, some of our American apps, right? So China's beating us in tech. And I think one of the reasons for that is the fact that we've got this stone, this dinosaur of, a, of these tech firms that are completely uh, dominating the market and there is no, there's no competition. It's anti-competitive. Anti and if we were to break these uh, monopolies up, we would have more competition in the uh, tech sector and, we would, and I think that'd be bigger out, better outcomes. The other reason I think we should break these huge monopolies up is, of course, because they have so much, because of their financial power, they have so much political power in this country. And it is, of, of course, the Democratic Party, the neoliberals that are greased up by Silicon Valley and the tech sector like never before. Right. So these um, these, uh, you know, tech monopolists are influencing you know, our federal policy. And, uh, and I think that's the other reason they've got undue political influence in Washington. And that, I think that's the other reason why we got to break them up. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You, did you have uh, thoughts on that, Sarah? Well, I guess I just wanted to say two quick things. Um, the first is I completely agree that big government loves big business. <laughs> and so like, like they really benefit each other. I think there's a lot of fundraising capacity that can come out of that, a lot of PAC money. Um, and then there's also, like you mentioned, you know, like big, big government will prefer to regulate. I think that's such a great point that they'll prefer to regulate one, one large business. Um, because it's easier, it's easier to get what they want out of it. And I think that's so important. Um, the, the, the other thing that, that I really wanted to mention too, 
um, you know, when, when we think about sort of, sort of the laws that are on the books, I think that you're absolutely right that, that companies have to be held accountable to the laws, um, that we do have. And I think that, that Amazon sort of, I guess when I was sort of talking about breaking up companies, I wasn't thinking so much about Amazon. I was sort of more thinking of sort of the, the freedom of expression kind of groups like Facebook, Twitter, Google kind of realm, but absolutely agreed. Like Amazon should not have the kind of power to, to shut down like third-party sellers. Um, I guess my, my hesitation with, with breaking up sort of the more social media kind of platforms more comes from this sort of core belief in, in this kind of American way that we have, where if, if, as, you know, as long as, as long as these companies are abiding by the law, which, Amazon, maybe not Twitter, Facebook, maybe are tenuously. Um, the, the idea is nothing is stagnant, right? Like someone else will come up with a new idea. And as long as we've built a regulatory and sort of political and a cultural and an economic foundation, then I think to a large extent we have in the United States, there will be, there is fodder, there is fuel to create a competitive environment. Now that's not to say that, that that's a given. Like I think, I think that A, it takes a very visionary person to come up with something new. I'm not that person. Daniel, I know is, (laughs) and I really envy that. Like, I think that kind of visionary that that's the sort of leader that it really takes to create something like that. Um, and, but then the second part is too, that, that when companies like Google or, you know, Amazon have too much power, then they can quash their competition. And, and then that sort of kills it. Right. Then you don't, like you said, Aaron, like there is no free market when that's the case. So I think that as, you know, without going so far as breaking up companies, I think as long as we have laws on the books to hold them accountable, hold companies, hold CEOs accountable to sort of practices that allow others to come along with their visionary ideas, then we, then the government, I think, needs to step out and say, okay, visionary, like you take it from here. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. So, um, yeah, I think in, in, in thinking about this and in hearing you guys talk, uh, uh, it seems like there's a uh, kind of a, a, a faith in, in the, the agency and the drive and, and the responsibility, accountability of the individual uh, on the right. Like, the, it, you know, as individuals, we can we can look at Facebook and say, I, I don't want any part of this and leave the platform. And. Uh, there's like this sort of like what Sarah was saying with, you know, nothing is stagnant. There's this, there's this, there's a sort of faith in people and their, their own capabilities to um, self-organize, create new things, leave these big platforms. Cause no one's forcing anybody to be uh, you know, on Facebook or Twitter, you know, like some, uh, <clears throat> some like, you know, thankfully we're not China where people are forced uh, into surveillance like that. Um, but uh, I think on the left, there's a there's there's an equally important uh, sort of notion that that people, in order to reach that level of agency, to reach that level of actualization in the Maslow hierarchy, you know, they need their needs to be their need they need their needs to be met to a to a sufficient degree. And I've heard statistics of of like you know 57 percent of people are paycheck to paycheck. Um, a lot of people can't afford a uh, $500 bill that's unexpected. 
And all this is happening while, I guess, a year ago, unemployment was historically low, stock market was historically high. Now, stock market still inexplicably is historically high. Unemployment is also kind of high. Um, so historically high, yeah. Right. So, so um, I, I wonder if if you guys might comment on on that kind of distinction between this sort of bootstraps you know, figure it out, pick yourself up uh, mentality on the right. And this sort of like, we need to care for the least of us and make sure that everyone has the, what they need to, to reach their full potential on, on the left. Um, and Aaron, we'll start with you. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd really be interested to hear what Sarah has to say about this too. I, I get what you're saying that there's sort of, um, you know, within the discourse, you know, that on the right, there's sort of, I guess you could say the boot, you know, like the Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of, uh, you know, narrative about what it means to be an American. You know, you get lots of great stories about immigrants that come to the United States and they grow up in poverty and they, um, you know, end up becoming very highly successful people. Whereas versus on the left you uh like you're saying you hear a lot of stories about how you know about whatever poverty and hunger and that the government should take a more active role in taking care of people's needs um although i will say that the uh democrat the the neoliberals the democrats that are in power in congress I'd, I think <laughs> don't believe that the government has any responsibility to take care of anybody's needs from their, from what I can tell from their actions, their votes. Um, but yeah, I do see that there is a segment on the left. And, you know, the other thing that I'd say is that I, I, I know that uh, on the right too, of course, you know, people believe in, you know, the dignity of life and helping poor people. I think of course they believe that and, you know, uh, believe in charity and some of, you know, uh, and, uh, though I think where they would disagree is in the government taking a more active role in distributing resources, just redistributing wealth, um, you know, like a universal basic income or Medicare for all, or, um, do you think I'm right when I say that, Sarah? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, I, I think, I think there is sort of, and I actually, I think this is why I was a little bit more liberal when I was in college is the compassionate view is to be a Democrat. Like, like if you're a nice person, you should vote Democrat because Democrats want to take care of poor people. They want to take care of, you know, pe people in poverty or, you know, minority people who statistically are more likely to be in poverty. And I think it took me a couple of years to see that, conservatives, in my view, the conservatives that I like anyway, <laughs> are not opposed at all to helping the poor. It's about giving government the power to help the poor versus having private organizations, charities, churches, but also like private companies help be, be the people that are, are really the, the arbiters of compassion, the arbiters of basic needs, as you said, Daniel, I think the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is best met in, in, in my view and in the view of most conservatives, I think, is best met through private organizations that are more easily held accountable than it is by government sort of arms. 
And I think I, I kind of learned that best when I was in Baltimore um, because, because Baltimore is a classic case of the government over-promising and naturally under-delivering because as Baltimore's leadership over-promised, continued to say like, oh, we'll give you the, we'll give you great schools. We'll just pour money into schools. We will make sure that you don't have to worry about healthcare. We'll make sure that you don't have to worry about um, about food, about, about your apartment, about, you know, and basically all of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the, the bills have to be paid for that. Like, like it, it takes an army. I mean, we have 1200 people who work at the department of health in Baltimore alone. I mean, that's like my entire high school. <laughs> it's like all working at one city's department of health. Um, and so those are salaries that have to be paid. And, and of course, it's impossible to be fired from a government job. So there's really no accountability for those people either. And so as kind of the, the, the government grows and grows and grows, you, you pay for that through taxes. And as that, as, as that happens, then the people who can afford to move away who don't really need to rely on the government for all of these services, they leave because all of a sudden crime is a big problem and the schools are no longer functioning because the government is no longer able to devote resources, for example, to police or to having a really great school because they're so busy, for example, paying for everyone's rent or paying for everyone's like, you know, food. <laughs> so, so I think, I think what, what ends up happening is a very well-intentioned philosophy of caring for people eventually just becomes, well, we can no longer afford to do all of these things. And so we're going to do them all poorly. And then you have the bad actors because we're human beings. We're all sinful and gross and bad. And so then you have people who see that system as well, this is obviously the system that has the most power. Like if I join the Department of Health, I'll never have to worry about a single thing. And I have the voice of the mayor. I have all this political power. And so then you have what Baltimore has dealt with for the past several decades of corruption of, of, of I mean, we just had we, like our last two or three mayors have, have had significant corruption charges, significant. And that's, that's an abomination. And, and the reason that that's been allowed to fester is because of all the power that exists in the government. If that's, it's sort of a monopoly question. You know, if the, if the power is disseminated throughout private organizations and throughout charities, then you no longer have a government that's, that's promising to deliver everything and basically failing to deliver anything except a pocket, you know, a, a checkbook in their own, in their own pocket. So, you know, I, I think that I, I, I do believe that the philosophy of most Democrats is not really necessarily about power. I do think that it's, that it's a, that it's a good hearted philosophy, but I do think that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the more power that you give, especially the federal government, because I don't think that you can govern Kentucky the same way that you govern California and expect the results to be good. I don't think that that will be the kind of, of America that either Kentuckians or Californians really want to live in. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, that's so interesting. You're giving me so much to think about. Um, uh, you know, I would say, I'll I'll say that I disagree with you, <laughs> but 
But, um, you know, it's funny how you're describing about corruption. It, what it made me think about is that, you know, I would, it makes me think about the Department of Defense, uh, which has never passed an audit, ever. Money that is just, tr- you know, trillions of dollars disappeared into thin air. Uh, you know, there's single bidder contracts, you know, multi-million dollar you know, uh, contracts that they give out to arms manufacturers and the defense industry and, uh, you know, heads of heads of arms manufacturing companies going into government and government officials going into the arms manuf- uh, industry. Um, and the Department of Defense, I think, you know, is one of the most highly funded, uh, has the, one of the greatest shares of federal budget. Um, I would, you know, there's an argument to be made that our national security is absolutely of prime most importance so that, you know, that that it merits all that federal spending. But I don't think anybody can defend the fact that the Department of Defense has never passed an audit, you know, that or or say that there isn't corruption there. Um and the reason I bring up the Department of Defense is because it's all it's for a long time been the argument of those of us on the anti-war left that believe, you know, that the defense budget should not be received as much, you know, that the resource, such a disproportionate share of the federal expenditure uh, that, uh, you know, we, the United States armed uh, that our defense spending is greater than the next you know however many 17 countries combined when it comes to uh you know uh, federal expenditures the defense budget and um you know i think that you know it's now become a common topic concept to talk about the military industrial complex you know um and ever since eisenhower warned us about that that it would have an undue influence on our politics And um, I would, you know, ever since the time of Keynes, we've known that a capitalist economy can have full employment, you know, that it is possible to have full employment, that everybody can have a job. You know, there's a lot of that Keynesian economics that was instituted as part of the New Deal that, uh, you know, get, you know, through the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration, other government programs that gave unemployed people work to feed their family and participate in the economy and to uh, have, you know, dignity, the dignity of work. And, um, and so it is my belief that, you know, in our society, the on the number, you know, the amount of hunger and unemployed people and uh, the nature of this economy, the ones who are left behind, I do believe that that's not a natural occurrence, that that's just happening in a state of nature. But I do believe that that's a political choice, that these are the consequences of of, of political decisions, of legislation, of the structure of our society, of where this federal budget goes. Um, You know, when we say that, you know, how it's a common trope to say, how are you going to pay for it? Medicare for all, how are you going to pay for it? You know, um, money for schools or whatever else, how, you know, this is our tax money. There's only so much of it. 
how are we going to pay for it? Though I think nowadays there's become a disconnect between, you know, the money that goes into the treasury as part of our taxes uh, versus the money at the disposal of the federal government. I mean, the federal government has been, you know, quote unquote, printing money, you know, indiscriminately for a long time now, especially since the Great Recession. And uh, it's funny that, you know, another common argument you'll hear people on my side say is that when, you know, the question always is, how are we going to pay for it? But, you know, a few months ago, whenever coronavirus hit, the federal government was able to magically uh, come up with some more than $3 trillion to give to large corporations so that they wouldn't go belly up. And, uh, you know, which is goes to our federal, which goes to our deficit to our, you know, uh, so I do believe that, you know, there's ample evidence to suggest that the money there's, you know, we have money that we can put towards things that will help people, programs that will help people, programs to stimulate the economy, to give people work. Uh, Though right now we have a situation where the ones that are making the political decisions who decide where the money goes, I believe that they have a class interest. And I come at this from a very class uh, perspective where I believe that there's a ruling class in this country and uh, of elites, economic and otherwise elites in business and in, in the military that have a disproportionate uh, influence on how money is spent. And uh, I believe that, you know, that they have a different class interest than the working class, which is what I think we, you know, which is who we are. And, uh, and so I think that if uh, we were to have more power in government, if we were to actually have a say in this democracy, and by we, I'm talking about the working class, who I believe is not represented in Congress or in the Senate whatsoever, our interests anyways, if we were to have a say, I would believe that this money would be spent in far different ways and there wouldn't be a Department of Defense that couldn't pass an audit where trillions of dollars have gone missing and with such corruption in between, you know, the leaders of large corporations going in and out of government and single bid contracts and uh, this relationship between the elites of our society and the federal government itself. So, so just to distill that a little bit. So it, it sounds like, um, I guess, I guess, um, Sarah, so for what's the answer for, for those that say like, Hey, reduce government, make it smaller. Um, what are your thoughts on the, you know, the, the, how to reconcile that kind of small government mindset with this pretty inflated defense budget along with all of the, um, the accompanying corruption uh, and the sort of self self fulfilling kind of uh, cycle of of, uh, of of money in politics, you know, like the corporations being really in with the lobbyists who pass the laws that help the corporations uh, and that and that keep the the machine rolling. Um, you know, those those two kind of seem separate to me. Like the idea of whether Baltimore should be uh, governed really broadly or with a small government and then the idea of this small federal government, but with a, a crazy outsized budget and, and inefficiency. So, you know, how do you reconcile those two 
kind of things. Yeah, I think sadly, the sort of term small government and how Republicans always really run on creating a small government is not necessarily honest. And I think actually, not to not to bring up Trump, although it has been, you know, over an hour and we haven't brought Trump up yet. <laughs> I, think <it's> America, <laughs> um, I think that Americans have become really disappointed in in sort of these these political failed promises, you know, broken promises of, of politicians. And I think there's a lot of anger in politics. I think you can sort of see that on the on the right in, you know, Trump's sort of way of communicating. And then you can see that on the left, you know, in the riots. I think that people really feel left out and, and angry about about sort of the the the, the broken promises that, that politicos have been making for decades and not really been meaning. I think that that's sort of a, a Reaganite kind of philosophy that cut everything except defense. And that philosophy was born out of the Cold War. I mean, it was born out of a time when we were really afraid and, and the majority of Americans were really afraid that we were going to have a nuclear war and we were all going to die at the hands of the Russians. And I, you know, I, I think that, I think that we do need a robust national security in my personal opinion, because we still do have, have world enemies, you know, I mean, China's really on the rise. We don't really trust China. Putin is obviously not a, a trustworthy kind of ally. North Korea is a little bit of a dark horse in there. Like we do have enemies. I think the problem is over the last 20 years or so, and I guess 19, we've gotten ourselves into kind of mired in these sort of endless wars in the Middle East, where now if we leave, then the whole region is destabilized. And we saw that a couple years ago when, when, when Barack Obama really tried to pull us out of the Middle East. Um, then we, there were a lot of terrorist attacks in, in Europe in particular, just I think probably because it's just easier to get to Europe <laughs> than it is the United States. And so we have to sort of balance that, uh, you know, against, you know, the, the national security sort of thought, but then also with the very valid point that this is a massive, massive monopoly, again, of money and power. Um, it, it, it's sort of enrobed in this kind of defense national security kind of thought process. And I think that there are there is a balance there. Like there has to be a way that we can sort of bring some accountability and bring an audit to the Department of Defense without it being sort of offensive to both Republicans, neocons, and neolibs who are invested in sort of a, a huge, a huge bureaucratic Department of Defense or Department of Education or Department of anything else, because that's sort of the the philosophy. And I, I, I think that sort of the way that it kind of ties in with small government is I don't know that we've really seen a president in modern history, meaning within the last maybe 70 years, who is really invested in sort of a, a small government philosophy. Um, I think maybe the last like small government guy was really Herbert Hoover, <laughs> like led to the, whose, you know, policies may have contributed to the Great Depression. But I think, you know, what Aaron mentioned too about the kind of the, the New Deal sort of investing in the, in the economy from the presidential sort of um, seat, I, 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 I think that that is a valuable contribution absolutely to our history and brought a lot of people out of uh, poverty that would have ensued from the Great Depression, but there there is a, a pretty significant 
there's some significant evidence that it, that may have also prolonged the Great Depression because there were, you know, regulations that came out of that period and there was sort of a, a lot of government involvement that sort of made corporations skittish about really, you know, investing in, in improving the economy rather than just sort of keeping it at kind of the status quo. And I, I think that, again, I think there's probably, there there has to be sort of a balance there, you know. I think personally, you know, on the subject of Medicare for all, while that is definitely an investment of resources in bettering sort of human life, healthcare in particular, it also eliminates choices for Americans. I mean, most Americans polled will say that they're pretty happy with their health care because their employer pays for it, or at least, you know, in, in most cases, it's between like 50 and 100% of, of per private health care, personal health care, not necessarily for the rest of your family, but it, that will be paid for by primarily by the employer. And then, of course, then you also have to get the, to the question of coronavirus because 20% of Americans are now unemployed. So then what are they doing for healthcare? And how does the government sort of, you know, repay for the fact that they're the ones who shut down our economy? How do they sort of handle the fact that they that they've kind of taken away Americans' healthcare? And I think these are all really important policy questions that I always come back to sort of the answer has to be kind of around, like you said, Daniel, about kind of individual choice, freedom, it, it, it really works in creating kind of, kind of a, a robust American economy and a robust kind of American life. Like I don't, I, I don't trust too much government involvement in kind of Americans' everyday lives because it eliminates choices. It eliminates freedoms. It creates unnecessary burdensome regulations that not every American is going to, is it, it, not, and honestly, that won't be efficient for very many Americans at all because the, the the fact that we had a $3 trillion coronavirus package earlier in this year, we will have to pay for that. Like, like the, the like our, our debtors overseas are going to come for that money. And whether that's in my lifetime or my grandchildren's lifetime, like that, that does matter. Like money does not grow on trees. Like we cannot afford to continue to sort of spend billions of dollars more every week than what we're actually taking in as a society and so or as a as a country. So I think that it is really important to sort of be a little bit more honest with Americans. Like what does it mean to have a small government? What does it mean to have a federal government that kind of stays out of your way and and allows you to to grow your own business without too much sort of um like sitting on top of your business? And, and how will that improve your life? And I think that, that messaging really matters and honesty really matters, um, to, like in, in, in the way that we move forward as a country after this pandemic. Yeah, I agree. That's awesome. Um, cool, well, there are a bunch of different directions that we could go in. Uh, and I definitely wanna have you guys on at some point to, to talk about endless wars. Uh, I think that's an important one um, I just, I'll, I'll share a little thing that I, I, I've just recently read about that I think is a pretty interesting illustration of this kind of conversation. And then I think we'll end talking about, uh, the election. So, um, uh, I've been reading the, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois book, uh, The Souls of, ba of Black Folk, uh, on Aaron's recommendation, actually. And really the, the, the time period, you know, from 1865 to 1900, is really a fantastic period. And, and that's where 
uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, like Du Bois spends most of his time. Um, and one of the things that he, uh, <clears throat> that he recounts that I thought was interesting and that illustrates like, you know, that the, the need not only for individual agency, but also for like some level of, of, of arbiter of, of government to make sure people are playing by the rules is that, uh, these former slaves would be like reemployed on the same plantations that, that they or their parents were slaves at. And they would be, uh, you know, they need a house, they need a mule, they need some land, they not, they might need some seed. So they would go to these creditors who would, uh, say, I will give you these supplies uh, and then charge an impossible amount of interest such that when the crop comes, the, the now freedmen can, can't really sufficiently pay back the creditors. And this system developed kind of like a weed of this, you know, perpetually keeping people in debt. And I'm not saying this to illustrate like a, a race thing as much as I am to illustrate like in absence of sort of this uh, oversight, um, these sort of weeds can develop where, uh, you know, people, uh, just, they're bad people, you know? And then like when bad practices are rewarded, uh, they continue and they grow and they multiply. And, um, I think that what, what those creditors were doing is illegal. I think it's called usury or something like that. Uh, but being illegal is one thing and, and enforcing it is something else entirely. So, that's just something that, that um, I've been thinking about. I thought you guys might like that story if you hadn't already heard of it. Uh, but we are a little over an hour and I want to get to, um, I want to, I want to end this on the upcoming election. I think it's a historic election. I don't know that the country has ever been more divided than it is. I mean, maybe uh, if you think like slavery could have, could have been a pretty divided time too, but, but this is, um, this is a this is a historic year, and and I'm wondering uh, just y- y'all's general thoughts, uh, Sarah. I know you're probably interacting with this material a lot in your day job, and Aaron. I know that you're always consuming a lot of what the thought leaders are saying. So, uh, what do you guys think about you know this upcoming election? How do you see it playing out? Uh, and we can start with Sarah. Hold on, if I may. I'm sorry. Can we pause and cut this portion out so that I can use the restroom? Oh, yeah, dude. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. Just because I felt like this was a good transition moment. Yeah, yeah dude. Know. We're nice. not going to cut it out. We're just going to talk to Sarah while you're gone. <laughs> okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> hey, Sarah, uh, serious question. So the government since, I, I don't know, you could argue since Reagan, you could argue since uh, FDR, has been growing slowly but surely, and it seems to be mostly through the fact that Congress does not have any term limits, just growing slowly but surely, bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know intellectually what curbs that growth. Uh, Our current system, our current Constitution doesn't seem to have an answer to stop the momentum that arguably started within the last, I don't know, 70 years or so. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're so right. And I think what what's really been unprecedented too is the growth particularly in the executive branch because Congress despite not having term limits despite you know sort of um 
sort of uh, having all of all of the power that they really need, arguably were intended to be the most powerful branch of government. And yet, because I think, as Daniel mentioned, how divided our country is, the executive branch sort of has to always step in and actually enact policies through executive orders. I mean, I, I heard about this story of this congressperson who kept on his desk a two stacks of paper and the one stack was maybe you know this tall and it was how many laws congress had passed and then the other one was all the regulations that the executive branch whether through agencies or departments all the things that they had gotten done and like it was probably 10 times the amount of of regulations and the amount of policies that are coming out of the executive branch as compared to the um, legislative branch And I think that's a really dangerous thing because Congress was set up to be the primary arbiters of power, the primary arbiters of law and policy in our country because they're closer to the people. And the the president, I think the, the, the ideal founders president would be just kind of a sitting duck, like didn't really do a whole lot, you know? And, and I think that, 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 is really unconstitutional. But as you mentioned, Paul, how do you go backwards? You know, once, once you've given someone or some agency or some, you know, bureaucracy power, they don't give it up. And I think we've sort of seen like a very slow, but very steady session of power to the executive branch and to the agencies. And I, I think that while it is un- unconstitutional, while you could make, you know, arguments up and down all day long about all of these agencies being unconstitutional, I don't see how you ever go backwards from that. Yeah, it, it's, it's super scary. And it kind of speaks to we're just a different version of an empire uh, or a superpower that's eventually going to come to an end. I hope it doesn't come to an end in my lifetime or my grandkids' lifetimes, but what we have is wonderful and awful all at the same time in this country, uh, and it's not going to last forever, and I, I see signs of it uh, around me all the time. Not to be depressing, you can use that as your break to come back in, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, I, um, something you said to me on, a, on an unreleased episode was that, um, that stuck with me was that when a uh, when an empire or when a country, when entertainment becomes king, like, you know, that there's a problem or like, that's when you know that, that it's in decline. Uh, and I've really been thinking about that. So Paul, I know that you like to think you like to talk about how dumb you are, but I think you're a pretty deep guy. Um, and with that, let's move back to, okay. Yeah. Election, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, if, if you had asked me a couple months ago, I would have said Biden is going to walk away with it. Um, I no longer am fully convinced of that. Um, I think we've seen, Uh, you know, at least in the last couple of weeks of August have seen a a tightening of the polls. And I also mentioned today, um, it just, it's just in a conversation and it struck me that it was really just occurring to me. Trump always outperforms the polls because people are ashamed, even when talking to a pollster to admit that they're voting for Trump. And we saw that in the primaries in 2016 too, that, oh my gosh, Trump's winning all these primaries. And we had him set, you know, all the way back in third or fourth place because people don't, they, they, they lie in exit polls. Um, and, and I think that that's important for us to remember. I think it's going to be a really close election. Um, and if I had to guess, 
I would say we're headed for a repeat of 2000 where we have a lot of litigation around the ultimate winner. And I say that because we have gone in our country from probably around like 10 or 12% of ballots being cast in the mail to this year, we'll probably see between 50 and 60% of ballots being cast in the mail. And those ballots take, A, they take a longer time to get there because in most states, ballots that are cast in the mail has to be postmarked by the day of the election. So then, of course, they're not going to get to the post to, to the elections office until a couple of days after the election. But then, two, you have this issue of rejected ballots, you know, because they either get there too late or they're not signed, or you've never voted by mail before and you don't know how to do it, so you don't put the secrecy envelope in, or the post office leaves off the postmark on the ballot, and that's state law that it has to have a postmark. Like All of these things are things that happen with mail voting that don't happen with in-person voting. And so the more that you have that, and then particularly if, if you have one party that, that is sort of favoring mail voting over another party, then you have a lot of litigation that goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I don't know that we're going to have a presidency that is really ever fully determined in, in 2020. I, I, I think that the most likely outcome is just like in 2000, it eventually goes to the Supreme Court and neither party or at least definitely the losing party, is not going to be satisfied that, that this was a free and fair election. And that's why my concern, if all of, my, all of these hypotheses are correct, my concern is really around 2022 and 2024. Because as we continue in sort of this mistrust and lack of confidence in our elections and in sort of our institutions, what comes out of 2022 and 2024 is even more radical polarization. Like I think the, the cessation of the middle is, is already, we're already seeing it. We've seen it on the left and on the right. And I think that, that if all of my predictions come true, then we will, that will only grow into really, I think, pretty dangerous territory. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, it's, it's uncanny how much I agree with you just because um, I think that a few weeks ago, I would have said that Biden was going to run away with it too. But now I think we're seeing a repeat of what I, of what I thought was 2016 in terms of the Democrats running a, a 100% Hillary Clinton campaign, which um I, you know, the Democrats campaign, I watched the Democratic National Convention. It was a horror show. I swear to you. It was like watching myself die inside. Uh, and the reason I say that, I mean, it was they're they're not offering any positive vision at all. The only message the Democrats are offering are that they are not Trump. And I think the Democrats are courting um, the I mean, at the convention, they had <laughs> they had more Republicans than they had progressive Democrats. AOC, they only had two people under the age of 50 speaking at the convention. AOC got less time to speak than Kasich, the union-busting governor from Ohio. So, <laughs> you know, we've got a Democratic Party that is uh, really, I would say, giving the middle finger to its base, the working class and is instead courting this um, uh, this professional this professional affluent coastal elite uh, suburban class of voters through identity politics 
to popper over their um, their economic conservatism, and um, and uh, and whereas I see what Donald Trump, the kind of campaign Donald Trump is running, I think is also not as effective as it could have been. Uh, for example, his 2016 campaign was absolutely historic, absolutely historic. The rhetoric of that campaign, the message about uh, uh, the sort of, I guess you'd call it the populist message of the Trump campaign, I don't think is there in 2020, um, which I think is not a good strategic choice Although, how could he run on a populist message when, in my opinion, he hasn't done, he hasn't followed through on any of the populist promises that he made. Um, and the, the, um, the strategy I see the uh, Trump campaign running is they're basically saying they're trying to tie Biden to the radical left, which I don't think sits very well with the public because I think the public understands that Biden is not radical at all. In fact, I think most people understand him to be a con- kind of a conservative, you know, and, um, and, but I, I still think that the, what the, what I'm noticing in the Republican National Convention going on is that there is more of a acknowledgement of the Republican base, of the Trump base. I think he's campaigning to his base, which I think is a smart move, although he has retreated from the populist rhetoric of before. And um, while the Biden campaign is, 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 is nudging off the Democratic base, relying on thinking that the left, the progressive left, will have nowhere to go. They have to vote for Biden because they have no other option. There's no third party progressive left option. Um, so I think they're thinking that the progressive left will have to come along and they can kind of uh, nudge them off. I think they're in for a rude awakening. Uh, the enthusiasm gap between Trump and Biden is immense. Uh, Trump supporters, I believe, are more enthusiastic about Trump than they have ever been. I think the only Republicans that aren't enthusiastic about Trump, except for on the margin, that's changed over the past Interesting thing about Trump, his approval rating has remained relatively constant and relatively high throughout the whole four years of him in office. Uh, The only time it took a dip was during coronavirus, and even then it didn't take a super significant dip. It just went down a couple points. Uh, So I think the enthusiasm gap uh, between Trump and Biden, I think Democrat, I think most, I don't think anybody is enthusiastic about going out and standing in a coronavirus polling place to vote for Joe Biden. And uh, so I think that they're really in for a rude awakening. And I think this really goes, um, it, it, we can, you know, it's really, we can, there's a lot of significance to this. The fact that um, the way these realignment, the way that these parties are changing, where back in, Back when George W. Bush was in office, you know, the Republicans, the neoconservatives were the establishment. And now, you know, Obama, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic Party establishment, the Democratic Party is now the establishment, I would argue. And I think, you know, in 2016, Trump ran as an outsider, anti-establishment candidate, and somehow he's managing to run as an anti-establishment candidate in this election as well. And, it, and it's because the, the Democratic Party 
Chuck Schumer went on TV and said that for every working blue collar, working class voter that we lose in the Democratic Party, we will gain two uh, moderate, you know, white collar, affluent, suburban Republican voters from the Bush years. Right. So the Democrats are courting this, uh, the never Trump Republicans. They're nudging off the base. There's nobody's enthusiastic for Biden. They think they've got it sewn up because of all because of the media hysteria that surrounds Trump for the past four years. Everybody wants it to stop. But I think they're in for rude, an absolute rude awakening. And and to what Sarah was talking about, this distrust, this um, the uh, this constitutional crisis that I see on the horizon in November. you know, is going to exacerbate the uh, existing, what do you call that, the polarization in this country. And and we can already see that already there's being doubt sown preemptively about the results of this election. You know, for one, Trump, uh, you know, Trump said that, you know, we'll see, you know, about the, will you accept the outcome of the election? He said, we'll see, you know, and um, which, you know, which, which is, you know, sowing doubt about the election. The same thing can be said of the Democrats with all this talk about, um, you know, about the post office, about how the sorting machines are being taken out and about the mailboxes being picked up. And I think already we're seeing a massive amount of doubt being sown around the results of this election. And what Sarah says is absolutely correct that, you know, these mail-in ballots will take much longer to be counted. So much of it will be litigated because of, um, you know, like you're saying, the postage stamp or the signature, the envelope, all of uh, the, you know, the so many of these ballots will be uh, challenged, which will take forever. Uh, And uh, so I think we're, you know, going to see a constitutional crisis in November that, you know, will have the effect that Sarah mentioned so astutely that by the t- two years from now, four years from now, there'll be even more distrust in our institutions than there is now, be even more uh, polarization. I think the media will be even more hysterical. And I think what this is an illustration of what Paul was mentioning, which is an empire in decline. This is a I would argue a failed state. You can you can see I you know I argue that we're a failed state just in our response to the coronavirus. You know we've got five percent of the world's population, but twenty five percent of the cases or the deaths or however it is measured. I can't remember. In other words, this country has experienced a disproportionate uh, effect of the coronavirus uh, relative to other industrialized countries. Uh, so I do see the, you know, this failure of our institutions and this distrust in our institutions and this massive polarization as a hallmark of an empire, of a nation that is failing, of a, uh, of a, of a changing world order with, like you were saying, China, the rising of China and the decline of the United States, which has ultimately come about because I believe because of these absolutely uh, illegal and um, absolutely unstrategic, endless wars that we've prosecuted all across this country. 
world. I meant not country. That's a uh, maybe a good segue to our next podcast with both of you, because uh, that's a, that's a much longer topic. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say, as a as a guy who's uh, lived over half a century, I can't believe that our two choices. One is somebody who I, I think just creates a horrible impression to the rest of the world about our country. And the other one, and look, I, I have two grandmothers that are lo- no longer with us that suffer from dementia. I, the other candidate is suffering from dementia. I can't believe those are our two choices. Hmm. But that, that's what our system has brought us to. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a bleak picture uh, that you guys paint. However, I will say that um, I think, you know, having conversations like this with maybe fundamental disagreements, but, uh, but a desire to, to like kind of just still be open to talking to each other and to still have, you know, share the agreements about what we do, what we do agree about is, um, is going to be key. And it's going to be probably one of our biggest weapons against, uh, the potential failed state that Aaron warns us of. So I really appreciate both of you guys joining us and uh, sharing all your thoughts. I think you guys did a really good job and, and I really enjoyed it. My, my uh, mom and dad both told me to surround myself uh, and talk to people that are smarter than me. And so I, this is just another example of me following my parents' uh, desires. <laughs> you saw yourself short, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having us on. And I think it's so nice to talk with you, Sarah. And I think really we agree about more than we disagree about. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah, this has been really great. You guys have all done an awesome job. I'm so excited to hear uh, hear the results. Thank you guys. Awesome. Very cool. Right, Thanks guys. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.